we developed this kind of theme over the podcast where I would bring people on who are successful with Etsy and particularly trying to create passive income streams with Etsy digital downloads. So that will continue to be a theme with the podcast. I like to bring on side hustlers and that's, in my opinion, that's a faster path to financial independence than just sticking it out with your W-2 day job for most people. That was Julie Berninger from the Fire Drill podcast, and she also blogs over at Millennial Boss. My name's Doug Cunnington, and this is The Doug Show. In this conversation, Julie and I talk about all sorts of things including paying off about $100,000 of debt in 18 months. We talk about blogging over at Millennial Boss and some of the you know, things she's learned about SEO and keyword research and just general blogging. We also get into some of the side hustles that she's into. So she does have a full-time job in technology. She actually really likes her job and, and mentions it a couple times. However, she does love the side hustles and earning money on the side, as she she mentioned in that intro there. One of the cool things that she's working on these days is Etsy printables. And in fact, we do have a like a free ebook download. If you're curious about selling printables on Etsy and you don't know where to start, you could check out the ebook. It's free. You just put in your name and email address and they'll send you the PDF. And basically, it'll give you a list of best-selling products by month and teach you how to capitalize on seasonal trends to make sales. It's very popular. I've checked it out myself. And if you're interested in, you know, checking out like a different type of side hustle than what we normally talk about, which is affiliate marketing, then this Etsy printables idea is probably a good thing to check out. And uh, like many things, even if you're if you're thinking, hey, I'm not going to sell anything on Etsy, it's a really good idea to check out what marketing is working in other areas because maybe there's a, a great technique that's being done and executed over on Etsy. And you could bring that to whatever it is you do, whether you have an e-commerce site, maybe you're selling other uh, info products or something like that. Or if you just, you're doing affiliate marketing in some fashion, it's really good to uh, check out what's working on other platforms. And uh, before I send it over to the interview, I just want to read a couple things about the Fire Drill podcast. Highly encourage you to check it out. So in 2019, the Fire Drill podcast was a finalist for the best financial independence retire early podcast. And that I believe that was associated with FinCon. In 2018, they were a finalist for the podcast of the year, the best hosted podcast, the best fire blog or podcast in uh, FinCon as well. So it's very popular. And um, this fire community is something that I'm trying to get, you know, a little bit more into. I'm interested in the topic and I have been for a little while. And as I'm meeting more people in this uh, financial independence area, well, they're my kind of people. We have um, great conversations. We're interested in a lot of the same things. And my observation, uh, just like here with Julie, she's into the FI movement. However, she she's very very interested in side hustles too. And when it comes down to it, we're into the same stuff. Um, we're, we're trying to earn a little bit more money, being smart about where we're spending our time and our money, and potentially um, you know, learning new things through you know, side hustles, doing different marketing, and 
it's just really fun. It's really fun to learn about marketing, especially when you come from a technology background like myself and, uh, you know, Julie's in tech right now. So without further ado, let's send it over to the interview with Julie Berninger. Hey, what's going on? It's Doug Cunnington here and I'm with my new friend, Julie. How are you today? Hi, Doug. Thanks for having me. For the people that don't know you at all, can you give just a brief intro on who you are and and what you work on these days? Sure. So I'm Julie Berninger. I'm a 30-year-old new mom living in Seattle, Washington. By day, I'm a tech professional. And at night, I'm a super side hustler. I'm also on the path to financial independence with the hope of retiring early. That is an awesome, uh, just very concise (laughs) intro. That's maybe the best one that I've heard. So you are a podcaster and how many shows have you done at this point? Close to 200 shows. Amazing. And I'm just curious, like when you, when you first started uh, the podcast, did you know it was going to lead you like into 200 shows and probably talk to hundreds of different people? No, I started the podcast because I wanted access to some of the people in my niche that I thought were just so amazing. And once you have a podcast, you have value to offer them and you have a platform where you can interview them and ask them any questions you want because no one will answer you if you say, Hey, can I buy you coffee and pick your brain anymore? But if you have a podcast, you can do just that. And it has led me to meet some really incredible people and definitely improve my own life and helped supercharge my side hustles. Fantastic. It's very cool. And I I was perusing some of the earlier interviews and you got some big hitters right away. Do you have any like I guess, like tips for people to be able to land like really big guests early on? I went to conferences for years before I started the podcast. So I already knew people in the industry. Also, I would say when you're walking into a situation like that, don't use your time with meeting someone who may be perceived as bigger than you to get them to analyze your personal situation. Because a lot of people will go up to someone that's really big in the community and ask them 50 million questions. And that they don't remember you after that. They just remember like, oh, this person wanted me to go over their taxes in the five minutes that we had. <laughs> um, so I would say add value, be a normal person, make connections in person. And that's the way that you can land some bigger people when you start. One thing that I ask people, especially in your position where you have a tech background, I I do as well. Um, Office space was very influential for me as I sort of um, went down my corporate journey. And I know it's a cult classic, but some people are not into it as I'm finding, which seems weird to me. But do you have a favorite scene from office space? Okay. I don't because the first time I watched it, it was too much. It was too real. I just, I can't go back there. I just need to move forward. It's like the walls are closing in on me, but truthfully working, I work at a large tech company and it feels very progressive. It doesn't feel like totally office spacey, but you know, there's no way you can escape some of the main stereotypes. Okay. So I may have to shift that question a little bit as I'm finding some people are like, Oh, you know what? It was too real or blah, blah, blah. But for whatever reason, it was it was the group of consultants that I was with like early in my career, and we we watched it all the time. And then I'm sure it led to us being like not satisfied with our our day jobs for a little while. So let's go back. Let's go back in in time a little bit. And I, w- I was doing some research for this interview, and I saw a couple articles uh, about moving west, and and maybe you're a little happier that you've moved west. So where are you from? Like, what's your story? How did you end up in Seattle? 
Sure. So I am an East Coast person by heart and by personality, but now I'm living on the West Coast and it has been the best thing I've ever done. Completely chilled me out. Well, okay, as much as you can chill out someone that's from Boston, there's always a little masshole rage that we have in us (laughs) that we're trying to work out. But I, I lived in Colorado first and that was actually for back in 2012. It was an internship for the U.S. Olympic Committee as I was leading up to the London Olympic Games. So that was my first kind of foray into digital marketing. I got the internship completely based on a website that I had built myself, unrelated to school or internships or anything I'd ever done. And I I was an intern after I'd already had a full-time job. So it kind of felt like I was going backwards in life to be an intern again. But who can say no when you're part of the Olympic Games and something as big as that? Living at the Olympic Training Center, it was amazing. So from there, it went from Colorado to ended up in California, working in big tech in Silicon Valley. I ended up missing the chill vibes of Colorado. So I've landed in Seattle, Washington, where I still get my tech, but I get access to the outdoors and a little bit slower pace of life and slightly less cost of living. I've moved west too. So I'm, I'm from the southeast, from the Atlanta area, and then it found our way to uh, Montana, which have you been to Montana? Have you spent much time there? I've been uh, to Bozeman. Yes. I lived in Bozeman. It is uh, fantastic. A little chilly, a little chilly in the winter, but... Yeah. Did you just visit uh, the area? So my passion is this online stuff. My husband loves music and fitness. So we went to an acoustic guitar festival in Bozeman, Montana. And he's been to so many conferences with me. I had to go to one with him and they actually made me go on stage and sing and like strum a guitar. And I had no idea what I was doing. So now I feel like you owe me one, Doug. Like I, (laughs) yeah. Yeah. Your, your husband's name is Doug Doug as well. It's a good name. Um, and, and that I know what you're talking about, uh, Tony Policastro and yep. he does. Yep. That's crazy. Huge digital marketer and like acoustic, um, like guitar master. So, oh yes. I actually watch the videos of my husband now just to see what Tony's doing in terms of how he's setting everything up. He has pot, he has a podcast, he has a membership site, all of that. And I, I signed up geeking out on like digital marketing and funnels. I signed up just to see his funnel and it's like fantastic and Bozeman's a small town, so you would see him like grabbing sushi or like just doing normal stuff that people do um, in Bozeman. So small world, very strange. Yeah, yeah, he's definitely a celebrity in that community. Um, and, and where in uh, Colorado did you live? We lived in Colorado Springs, but I worked in Denver. Okay, what, what is that like an hour commute? It's or about so? an hour. Yeah, it's not so bad. Okay, and it was a cool job. How long were you in in the area here? I was in so Colorado for almost five years. And then that's when I realized if I want to be serious about working in tech, I have to go where tech happens and Silicon Valley is where it is. And another interesting thing, because I'm I'm sure some people are thinking, hey, like you're you're working in tech, there's big salaries there, but you didn't start there. Can you tell us a little bit of, you know, your journey from like a liberal arts degree to the position you're in now? Sure. So I graduated college with a political science major and I approached college like what your parents worst nightmare, like basket weaving. I did all of that. Anything I found interesting, I would take a college class on it because I thought I was a scholar and I was learning all these worldly things. Did not understand that you get paid for skills. And yes, like I learned critical thinking and writing and things that have served me well, but I did not have any concrete skills to sell to an employer. And when I graduated in 2011, post-recession, that was not a good time to be skillless on your resume. So my first job out of college, I just took, I had the whole summer where I 
moped around with my friends and lived back with my parents living in the basement. It was an absolute nightmare. Cause for me before that I went to a prestigious university. So I thought that I was doing everything right. And it turns out that I had no idea what I was doing in life. I was doing everything wrong. And that's when I started a blog about study abroad. And all of my major opportunities have came from that one situation where I started this website and it all kind of took off. And that's where I learned that if you want anything in life, no one's going to hand it to you. You have to create it yourself by doing the work every day. The prestigious university, um, was it in Boston? It was in Western Mass. Okay. It was a small liberal arts college. Okay. I've heard uh, a lot of people that they went to Harvard and they're like, oh, I went to school in, in uh, Boston. And then they just try and like move on. So. No, my boss used to do that. And we're like, Dave, you went to Harvard. Like you, yeah. you can tell everyone. Yeah. No, it's this like, is a on. small liberal arts college that not many people know, but in the East Coast, I've noticed it's kind of all about like where you go to school. West Coast, no one cares. It's like, can you code? That's what moves the needle. But East Coast is very about the, the schools. That's like a societal currency. You paid off a huge amount of debt and I guess you found your way into the fire community, like maybe through that route. Can you tell us what's the headline for that? Sure. So my husband and I have paid off over $100,000 of debt since we got married. We married for love and not money. So both realized that we were in massive debt together and we're trying to crawl our way out. I Googled a bunch of things. I found someone. He actually did go to Harvard. It was nomoreharvarddebt.com. His website no longer exists, but he chronicled how he was paying off his debt step by step. And I tried to emulate him as much as I could. So we sold everything on Craigslist. We had purchased a home because I had gotten a big raise at my, my first tech job, which wasn't working in big tech, but it was my first opportunity in IT, in IT department. And we took that money and I had bought a car and a house. So we had to reverse all of those major spending mistakes and were able to sell the house. I got a job that paid a little bit better. Um, well, actually a lot better because I moved to California and Silicon Valley and that helped. And then we just sold everything, downsized, and we were able to pay off 90000 I think it was in 18 months. And then from there, we realized that my parents had taken on student loan debt for my sister and my education. Uh, with my parents, we don't talk about money. We never talked about money growing up. So I had no idea that they even had these loans that were for my education. But once I realized that I became determined to pay off my half, the 50% that I owed them for that too. So that's how we got over a hundred thousand dollars of debt. Wow. Wow. So growing up, you guys didn't talk about money or budgeting and you didn't, you weren't, uh, I guess taught the skills to do that. No, my parents always tried their best. And I think they, they tried being side hustlers. Like my dad, he actually was a DJ, like not a cool DJ, like funky chicken type DJ. That's what he did. Um, But he had that side hustle and he had also tried real estate. So they tried, it just, they weren't able to apply their hard work in a place that paid off. And we never talked about money. They felt that kids should be shielded from that and just be kids. But I kind of graduated college with no sense of, of anything in terms of financial stuff. Interesting. I I was just talking to Carl Jensen, did a similar interview and he mentioned the same thing with, with his parents. There was like an actual sort of incident where he was wondering like the financial situation of the family and then they like shut him down. So very interesting. Do you guys talk about it now or? 
I mean, they're supportive of everything I do. I have a podcast about money, so my dad listens to it, and but it doesn't really spark conversations. Like right now, given that I have older parents, we probably should be talking more about like their planning and downsizing someday and what their medical plans are and wishes. That's not something that we discuss as a family. So um, you think it would open the door, but it's just, you know, the way people are. But they have great hearts and they're great people. Sure. Yeah. And I remember um, actually just a couple weeks ago, my we're purchasing a home soon. And my dad was like, uh, if you don't mind me asking, it's kind of a personal question, but how much is the house? And I'm like, you're my dad, dude. Like, it's not even that personal. You could like look it up online. Yeah, so exactly. It's not really a big deal. So very amazing. Very amazing. So I want to shift gears back into some of the podcast stuff. Now, you've had, uh, or you recorded like 200 episodes. It's going awesome. When I was kind of doing the research before I emailed you, I was like, I maybe shouldn't email Julie because this looks like kind of a big deal. But luckily you, you replied back super quick and thank you for that. But I checked and it looked like in around 2017, you had like a hundred thousand downloads, which is pretty awesome. And, and that was within like a year or less, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. We had a lot of downloads fairly quickly. Okay. And then over 1.5 million uh, as of like one month ago. So congratulations. That is amazing. I think you've potentially won some rewards and stuff like that. So I guess I don't, I don't even know what, what to make of that because it started uh, in a humble way and then it's grown very huge. How do you, I guess, what's the journey like? That's what I'm trying to say. How, how do you feel like emotionally? Because like I could see the numbers and you know the numbers and you see the stats and probably people recognize your voice if you're just walking around because so many people listen to it. But yeah, emotionally, like how do you, how do you feel about the podcast? It It's completely changed. It started out more of a selfish endeavor. Like I mentioned, just I wanted to get access to people. I wanted to learn and absorb as much as possible. And now it's its own community and movement within the broader financial independence or fire movement. And now what I like about it is that I have a platform where I can help launch people who who have amazing stories that would it be so inspiring to others, but either they're not getting the opportunity because no one knows who they are, or they don't fit into the standard box of like what someone pictures as someone who's achieved financial independence. Like typically uh, because Mr. Money Mustache is a very influential figure in the community, it could be a white male who's in his 30s and has a certain attitude about money. But there are this is a movement that there are millions of people that are doing this. Well, maybe not millions, but there are a lot of people, it feels like, that are doing this. And you know, there are people who have all different types of families from all different cultural backgrounds, people who are LGBTQ that don't really get their stories heard. So what I like on my podcast is can, how can I find these undiscovered gems bring them on, try to convince them to buy a microphone. Cause that's the problem sometimes with people that are just starting out, they don't have all the gear. And if you have a mic and the other person doesn't, that doesn't make the best episode. But once I get that going, then I can help launch some of these people. And I like to see them spread their stories and inspiration to others. Well, with that said, like, it sounds like you want to help, help people spread their stories. Are there any specific goals that you have in mind where you're like, Hey, like we're planning on doing this for 2020. I think as a podcast host, I had the opportunity to interview a lot of side hustlers and we developed this kind of theme over the podcast where I would bring people on who are successful with Etsy and particularly trying to create passive income streams with Etsy digital downloads. So that will continue to be a theme with the podcast. I like to bring on side hustlers and that's 
in my opinion, that's a faster path to financial independence than just sticking it out with your W-2 day job for most people. And even someone like myself, I do make a lot of money in the tech field and I'm working at a giant tech company, but the day job income was, uh, the side hustle income was one third of my total household income last year for my husband and my side hustles. So I think even people who are crushing it in their day jobs in terms of income, they can have a huge benefit with side hustles. So next year in, in 2020, we're going to continue to focus there because I think that's a faster path to five for a lot of people. hundred percent agree. I know I kind of accidentally got into side hustling. I didn't have any like dreams or thoughts of entrepreneurship at all. And then, like you said, at some point I was like, well, I'm, I'm making good money over here. When I got laid off, then I had an, a really good opportunity to go full time with it, which was, I mean, it's rocky, you know, it's not easy by any means to set up passive income. There's a lot of work to, to make it passive. But um, yeah, once I sort of like wiggled my way out of that, um, that spot is fantastic. So that said, you obviously have some side hustles going. Can you highlight a couple of them for us? Sure. So I've been blogging for a long time. My first blog was in 2012, but this latest one, millennialboss.com was started in 2015. And that is a side hustle that it's a brings in a five figure uh, revenue every single month, uh, making like 30 K a year off of display advertising. It's crushing it in terms of bringing in side hustle income for me. And it started out more of like a personal diary blog. But what I think a lot of bloggers realize is that you can't, if you want to blog for profit, you can't necessarily share your whole life story and all your secrets and all of that. That's not going to make you any money. You have to figure out what people are searching for on Google and all of these social media sites and write to them. So that's, that's a huge side hustle for me. And I, I focus a lot of time there. I also hire a lot of things out now that I'm busy and I have a baby and I have a lot going on. Freelancers definitely help me get through my day. But uh, I have a podcast too that I'm starting to monetize. For a long time, I didn't monetize it. I think I was just building trust with my audience. And now in 2020, I'm ready to partner with some brands and companies that I think are amazing. And I think we have a good fit, a natural fit between the two of us. I think that would be great. And then I also sell on Etsy. I started out selling temporary tattoos there. This is a very silly thing, but I went to a lot of bachelorette parties in my 20s. And I always listened to podcasts about people that sell things online uh, on Amazon or on Etsy or all these places. And I couldn't think of anything that I could sell, but I had been to so many bachelorette parties and I knew that girls were dishing out ridiculous amount of money for the dumbest things, um, which I've had to do so many different times. So I realized that there's something here. So I started selling temporary tattoos. The margins were incredible on them because it costs so little to manufacture. It was like 20, 20 cents and I only committed to 500. Whereas if I had committed to like 2000, I could have got them for six cents each, but people will buy them for $2 or 250 each. So uh, I started selling those. And then from there, I realized that temporary tattoos, even though the margin was great and the money was good, it was very, it was like a mind suck every day to have to say, okay, do I have an order? What do I have to put in the envelopes? I have to print out the sticker. I know it seems like, like a lot of people would be willing to do that for $15 per order, but it got to the point with the money I was bringing in with my day job and my other side hustles that it wasn't worth it. So then I switched to selling printables for bachelorette parties and that's my new gig. And I really enjoy that. Cool. And as far as I'm going to jump back, cause you mentioned before the, the millennial boss blog 
And you alluded to, hey, you got to write stuff that people are searching for. So you, you got into keyword research and some SEO, which is kind of like the wheelhouse of like most of the the listeners and viewers. So do you have any like insightful tips where you were like, oh, I had no clue that I should have been doing that for a little while. What was a light bulb moment for you? I think the lowest hanging fruit writing and breaking things up into headers. So making your content more skimmable because people decide whether or not they want to read based on skimming. And if they can't skim your content, it's an automatic no. So formatting it and organizing it so that it makes it easy for skimmers, just look at it on your phone and use your fingers and see if you would be intrigued to read further or not. That would be the easiest thing. And then the second thing, I started using free tools for keyword research. I think the latest one now, like Uber suggests is one that people use, but I personally pay for um, Ahrefs. I think that's a valuable tool. And that's where I get a lot of my ideas of what to write about. And then third, figure out what social media platform you think is going to be the one that will drive the most traffic to your site and find out what's popular there. So Millennial Boss, given that I am a female, I'm writing about lifestyle topics, Pinterest was a natural fit for me. So I always did keyword keyword research on Pinterest too and tried to figure out what types of content did well there. And that would and I've noticed that posts that do really well on Pinterest also do well on SEO for me as well in Google. Did you implement those things from the beginning or it took a little while for you to do that on Millennial Boss? Absolutely not. I implemented none of them at the beginning because at the okay. beginning it was more just chronicling my my debt, my, my student loan payoff journey. But actually that wasn't a bad thing because it helped me get actual readers. It helped me build some credibility within my community. Because if you start out building a blog that's purely like an income blog, it's kind of hard to make that bloggy friend group where people are helping you and you're reading each other's content and all of that. So I think it it actually benefited me that I waited for about a year and a half before I started to really hit it, hit it heavy with the affiliate marketing and display ads and all that. Agree a hundred percent. I mean, it's, it's on the edge of like the make money online, um, area, which is exactly what I'm in. So I, it's weird. There's a lot of like, uh, just tricksters out there, charlatans, I guess by, by just like being real, that's like a brilliant way to do it. And it sounds like you did it with a podcast too, where, no ads. I mean, who? I'm sure you get pitched constantly. You must get a couple of emails a day that people want to run ads on your on your podcast. Income reports and side hustle uh, revenue and all that stuff. For a little while, you were publishing on on Millennial Boss, and I think for a couple of years, and then and then you stopped. Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. So I started recording how much money I was making on the blog in January, 2017. And that was when I made, I think I made $700. And then by December, 2018, I had, I was making seven or $8,000 a month. And after 24 income reports, I decided that I wasn't going to publish anymore. It was exciting. And I had a lot of fellow bloggers cheering me on as we were learning and building together. And I was writing all these different experiments that I was doing every single month. But one, a lot of people don't realize how much work it takes to put together these income reports. If you make money on your blog and you are successful, then you're pulling funds every month from probably 10 or 11 different affiliate third-party networks. And then you're having to add all that up every month. And it's, it becomes like a not a value add for you anymore. And given that I already had 24 income reports that I could 
send to people and uh, direct new people to. And given that the majority of people, they're just starting out, they're not getting from 8,000 to 30,000. They're not there. They're trying to get from 200 or zero to 2,000 and they'll be happy. I felt that I was no longer serving my audience anymore by continuing to publish numbers that they seemed create out there. And also the work that it went into it for me was not worth it. So now I keep my own records for my taxes and my own accountability, but it's not something that I regularly publish anymore. The way I got my start was uh, Smart Passive Income with Pat Flynn. Are you a listener or anything? of? Oh, longtime listener. My husband and I used to listen to him all the time. Yeah. And I would get my wife to listen and she's like, I don't know about this guy, but I'm like, yeah, no, he's good. He's a good guy. So yeah, I remember when I first started looking at his income reports, I was like really amazed. And then it was getting into like 40, 50, 100K per month. And I'm like, this is bananas. This guy's making like millions of dollars per year. Like I, I cannot relate anymore. So totally understand where you're coming from on that. Did you get any pushback from actually publishing the reports um, from maybe family or friends or anything like that? The reports actually weren't the biggest problem with family or friends. Being in the personal finance niche was the problem. Um, and, you know, no one ever, there was just some awkwardness because I was writing about how to save money on my wedding and how to save money on engagements and bachelorettes and things. Yet I was getting invited to other friends' weddings and other friends' bachelorette parties. And even my most, one of my most popular posts, organically popular, has been how I save money on my engagement ring. My husband and I did not choose a diamond. We chose a moissanite, which is like a lab-created stone. It's becoming very popular right now for people who are kind of in this community and don't want a diamond for all the reasons that a lot of people don't want them. But for all of my friends, like my girlfriends, they, even though I never said like I was judging them or anything, hearing that I was making these choices started to make them, I think, kind of question their own choices. And then it got a little bit awkward. Uh, but now everyone is super supportive. And I've also backed away from writing about some of the more controversial things because I value my friends more than my blog. Sure. So I, I sent you a couple er- questions early so you could think about it just in case you needed some time to uh, review. But any great or useful, helpful purchase in the last year or so? I mean, today we just got our Mint Mobile SIM cards and we're very excited about it. We used to be Verizon customers and now we're switching over and trying something new and we're saving like 66%. So that's a very practical purchase, but it, I think it's going to be a good one for us. Can you tell me about that? Because we're paying like 110 bucks a month or whatever for our mobile services. Yes. We were at like 150 and I think this is going to be $25 and... 15. I, I wanted more data than my husband. So we're paying a little more for me. But uh, Mint, some of these services, I think, from my understanding, they're like buying some up some unused things from the major carriers. And you can get them a lot cheaper. And you just need to know how to switch the SIM card yourself and your phone, which you can look it up on YouTube. It's not that hard. You don't go to a physical store at all. So you just order it online, you set up the plan, they ship you it in the mail, and then you can cancel with your major carrier. But okay. personally, I think it's a good deal. I, I, I don't know if the service is good in Seattle. I'll find out. But from what I've heard, people seem to really like it. And because it's a major carrier, there are no really interruptions to your service. Cool. Yeah, I'll have to look that up. I was just going to ask you more questions, but I could just Google it. I'm not going to waste your time <laughs> asking questions. I could just look up on my own. But good tip because we've been paying like for AT&T service for years. And I know I can save a little money there, but I'm like, it's just convenient. Uh, I don't want to go through it. So 
anyway, that is, that is a good tip. Do you have any other, like, uh, I guess tips on saving money that a lot of people sort of miss? Hmm. So saving on the major things like house car, although I like to splurge on housing because I have a particular place that I want to live. And I like being in the hustle and bustle of the downtown Seattle area, but I still wanted a house. So for us, it was worth spending more, but then we tend to cut back in other areas. So right now, we we have our daughter and we're trying to avoid like buying her a million toys and a million things, only buying what we need. I mean, honestly, she's happy playing with like a blanket at this point. She's not old enough to need like really expensive toys and things. But for us, we're just minimalists, I think, to the core. And it's something we've developed over time. Okay. Because you mentioned like when you got one of one of those good jobs, you bought a house, you bought a car, like it sounded like you, you shifted at that point. Was that pretty difficult or you, you saw the advantages of doing it like right away? I think meeting other people in the financial independence fire community at these conferences made a huge difference. So I, I did, I met Carl Jensen, 1500 days is his blog in person. And there are a few others like Brandon from the mad scientist, Tanya Hester from our next life. These are people that they have achieved financial independence and they don't work anymore and they don't have to work anymore hearing and seeing them. Um, oh, Jeremy from Go Curry Cracker. I love him and his wife. We actually stayed with them on a houseboat at a conference. And when you're like staying with someone, you get to see more and more and have more conversations with them. And I just realized that this was possible for people. I was in a great position given where I was in my day job and my aptitude for side hustles. And that if I just like cut back, my life would be infinitely better, like sooner, instead of having to put off some of these things I was dreaming of. Cool. Do you have any other splurges aside from housing? Let's see. Um, equipment for the side hustles. So uh, almost all of my hobbies, they tend to be revenue producing in some way. So I don't really feel guilty about any type of convenience spending. So if I go to a coffee shop, this was before the baby when I used to have fun, but if I would go to a coffee shop and I would you know, buy an expensive latte and get myself a scone or a muffin and not even care, because I knew that if I had two hours, I'd probably make $50 and I just spent 11 or, you know, I live in Seattle, so things are expensive, but it would, it didn't matter. Or like if I take an Uber, then that's 35 more minutes than I would have in my day to spend working on something else than if I drove and had parking and all that. So convenience spending is something I don't even bat an eye at. Same with hiring freelancers and delegating. And that, Brings me to another thread that I was thinking about before, but I completely forgot. What what does your team look like? So you mentioned a couple of times you're hiring freelancers. Um, yeah, tell me about who you're working with. Sure. So to give you an idea, in 2019, I had a podcast editor. I had a show notes person. And essentially, I, all I do is create the content and then I would send it to them and they would mark it up and send it out. Now, when you have a podcast editor they often don't make content calls. So it's a little bit more work than a complete like hands-off thing, but that was worth it to me. And then I also hired people to write content on millennialboss.com. So um, I would give them exactly what to write. I would tell them what the headings would be, and then they would just fill it out. Now, sometimes they wouldn't totally get it right in terms of like search intent and things I knew, but even just having a starting draft that was completely done for me was just a huge, huge benefit. And I I occasionally would hire people for social media, but from a social media perspective, often 
there, when you outsource it, there's no like real value there, but I do have a Pinterest VA. So, um, a Pinterest virtual assistant who would pin for me. And these are all people that I either knew from the community and either I thought they were good at something and I pitched them this opportunity or I found them on Upwork. Okay. How do you manage the team? Um, cause it sounds like, uh, what is that? Like four or five people? Oh yeah. And I totally forgot we have VAs. So for, I have a course, uh, with the business partner and with the course, we also have VAs that answer our emails and they do like cancellations and any type of kind of like tech admin work with the course. And then we hire people to be experts in our Facebook group who it's a paying membership and people will answer any questions. These experts that we've found, they'll answer any question that you have in the course. And this kind of, it was a good, better value for the students in the course because they got immediate answers to their questions. And for us, we could be more organized. So instead of like fielding a hundred emails a day of like, how do I do this? How do I do that? Everything is in the Facebook group. People can answer each other's things, build momentum, and it's more hands-off for us. Very good. And my, my, uh, one of my assistants that answers some questions for my course, she's on maternity leave. So she's been out for a little while and I miss her so much. I can't, I can't wait till she gets back. Yeah, you definitely realize the value. So I'm in the opposite situation where I've been on maternity leave. And in January, I did not want to put the people that work for me under like such a tight turnaround because I can't record the episodes so far in advance like I used to. So I stopped working with my editor and my show notes person just for like two months. And it is, I, I respect them so much. Just the fact that they have to listen to me and like chop my stuff that I say is a lot of work. And I can't wait till I start working with them again. Yeah, no kidding. So you you are doing it all on your own. You're like recording it and mastering and all this stuff. Yes, just for these two months because I felt bad. The worst thing yeah. you can do to an editor is just like, hey, here you go. This is going out tomorrow. Can you do this? So I figured I'll just do that to myself, which, you know, having a baby that makes everything a hundred times harder. Oh my so, God, I can't imagine. Yeah. We, don't, we don't have any kids, but you're doing a great job. Thank <laughs> <So>. you, thank <laughs> you. <laughs> all right, um, I guess we're s- sort of wrapping it up here. And... I asked you about goals for the the podcast. It sounds awesome. Uh, sharing more stories and side hustles. Any goals like uh, long term with the blog, side hustle wise or otherwise? Sure. So side hustling completely fuels me. I love it. But now I realize with this new life change that financial independence and online entrepreneurship are not the same thing. And before I used to explore my podcast you know, is someone who maybe blogs after they hit their financial independence number, maybe they've really achieved like the best work-life balance and that's it. But what I've realized is that when you have all these things that you do online entrepreneurship, it is work. There are things that I love and there are things that I absolutely hate and you can delegate as much as you can out, but you're always going to be like churning your mind and moving. So I guess my husband and I are really committed right now to a true financial independence. We're not going to try to be those people that are retiring at age 33, like some of the people on my podcast. It's going to be intentionally probably in our forties when maybe we'll naturally want to pivot to do something else. Um, My husband, he wants to be a luthier and build guitars and he doesn't want it to have to have money attached to it at all just for fun. And then for me, I'll need to find something because I love doing things online. I need to discover some hobbies, but maybe just like going back to being a normal person and enjoying like simple things in life might be good for me. So I guess I would say like true financial independence is our goal. Okay. And it sounds like it's, it's sort of open. I know some people like uh, 
Carl, for example, Mr. 1500 Days, um, they, they put like some deadline, but you're just going to do it when you're ready. It sounds like. Yes. And I think I can only say this because I've been pursuing this goal for five years. So I have five years worth of savings. We've had an incredible bull market. And luckily, I had money to invest at the time to take advantage of these things. We benefited from real estate. So I guess what I'm saying is that we've hit a point where we're not financially independent. But knock on wood, we're not going to go broke. I could decide that I want to take you know two years off to raise my daughter, and it's not even going to matter. And like with the side hustles, once you start setting this stuff up, they don't just like suddenly stop. If you stop doing them, they just kind of like slowly decline. I actually noticed that last year, millennial boss, I was too sick when I was pregnant to post anything for four months and just nothing happened. It just slowly, my income dropped slowly over the four months and then I got back to it and it was fine. So I think, you know, we're, we're just realizing how much we want to work and how many options we have because we were so good with money for a long time. Interesting. Yeah. Cause I, I was going to say like, w- we feel sort of the same way. Uh, like it's been a good market for a while. We've had good jobs. We've been saving, we have good habits and stuff. So I need to get my wife to listen to this episode. She doesn't listen to any. Well, tell her to listen for sure. Um, yeah. My husband started listening to my podcast when he was walking the dog and I'm like, Whoa, okay. Are you <laughs> in this now? He was giving his friend financial advice. I was so proud. Ah, that's pretty, that's pretty cool. Have you ever had him on, on the show? I have his, so his background, we met at the Olympic training center and he was with the athletes in the weight room. He's like strength and conditioning expert, um, working with Olympic athletes, tactical. So he's been on to talk about like fitness and our kind of approach to this whole lifestyle design is that if you don't have your health, then it doesn't matter how much money you have. So he's kind of chief fitness officer, nutrition expert in our house. And I would say I'm chief money officer and it's a good, a good mix. Sometimes we clash. But um, I appreciate his knowledge because I want to be able to take advantage of what we've built for as long as we can and be as healthy as possible for it. Julie, thanks very much. This has been very enlightening. Where should people go find you? I would love to connect with you guys on my podcast, Fire Drill Podcast. Um, Also, if you're interested in side hustling, check out Gold City Ventures. It's a lot of fun and we teach people how to blog, sell printables on Etsy as well as freelance. And we'll put links for all that stuff in in the show notes and description. Thanks a lot, Julie. Thank you. Thanks a lot to Julie. And please do check out the Fire Drill podcast. If you're interested in uh, side hustles and just financial independence in general, you're probably going to find several episodes that you will enjoy. There's also a high likelihood that I may be able to join as a guest on the show. So if you subscribe and then, you know, <laughs> let Julie know that you would like to hear from me and that you're interested in hearing more from Doug, then um, that would be fantastic. Additionally, There are links in the description for uh, like Gold City Ventures and some of the other things that Julie's working on. And you can go over to Millennial Boss and check out some of her income reports. They are a little bit from the past and we talk about it, you know, directly in this uh, conversation. But basically, um, if you want to get a a little glimpse into, you know, some of the earnings that she had a couple of years ago, then you'll see what uh, excellent marketing chops she has. And I mean... She's super smart, super driven, and she's she's really crushing it out there. So do check it out. 
one one little side note here is I did send um, Julie like a cold pitch. I, I don't know. I didn't know her before. Um, we're kind of in different areas. I obviously have this podcast and the YouTube channel, but um, J- Julie has never heard of me or anything like that. So um, I, co- I commend her for taking a chance and chatting with me. Um, like I said, she responded back to my email very quickly and I was a, a little bit surprised. And she was like, yeah, let's do this thing. And I, th- I think it's great. I- I'm not sure if it was um, in my pitch email or perhaps uh, Julie's just a-, a wonderful human being. And she was like, yeah, I'll-, I'll talk to Doug, even though I don't know who he is. I don't know uh, about his podcast or anything like that. Be sure to check out the uh, show notes and description for all the places that you could check out some of Julie's stuff. If this is the first episode of The Doug Show that you're listening to, thanks for checking it out. Normally, I talk about affiliate marketing, mostly around Amazon affiliate marketing, and a lot of kind of deep technical topics like SEO, keyword research, and shoot, we get we get in the weeds every now and then. So if, if you're into the side hustle ideas or you're thinking, hey, I want to get into affiliate marketing, I highly recommend you check out some of the episodes that are success stories. So there are several of them. And if you go back to, you know, some of the first 20 episodes or so, you will find um, some success stories from like Marty and, and Christy and Adrian. And the cool thing is those were from, you know, over a year ago at this point, I'm recording this in uh, like the early part of 2020. So those early interviews are from like a year ago or more. And the super cool thing is I just interviewed some of the same people um, in the last like month or two. And basically they're growing, right? They're continuing to work on their sites. Some people like Marty have quit their full-time job. Some other folks are like growing sites that are worth um, like high five figures, some over six figures at this point, if they were to sell it. And those are the episodes that you should check out. Those are the most popular by far. And I can see that via you know, the number of downloads and views on YouTube. But additionally, I get emails from people that say, hey, that conversation was very inspiring. I really think it's amazing that, you know, people are figuring out how to do this stuff, figuring out how to build a niche site, figuring out how to grow their sites. And like I said, some people are able to quit their jobs or able to pay off debt earlier. And this kind of goes back to like what Julie was saying for a lot of people Working on a side hustle may be a more direct path to financial independence if you're able to pay off debt a little bit faster. I was just chatting with a good friend of mine um, yesterday, which I say he's a good friend of mine, but we haven't talked in years. We moved, I moved away. So I moved away. So I haven't talked to him in a few years, but um, you know, his career has been progressing. He is uh, crushing it. He's been getting. Uh, like promotions and moving to, you know, better jobs, better companies over time. And he's sort of navigated the corporate environment really well. But guess what? He still doesn't love his job. In fact, he was he was telling me, he was like, man, I, I don't know if I could do this for much longer. He was like, I, I think I got like maybe three or four years left in me, but it, I'm stressed out. There's all these corporate politics, my raises, um, are not that great. And basically, you know, it's the same story we hear over and over again. I know there's probably people listening to this right now, sitting in your cubicle thinking, wow, I wish I wasn't um, 
wish I wasn't like strapped in with these golden handcuffs at this job that I really don't love, but I realized that I just found myself sitting here in this cube, or maybe you're sitting in traffic, even worse, sitting in traffic. But anyway, the, the side hustle path is like what got me to where I am and you know, people like Marty that I mentioned before, and some of my other peers, we we started working on these side hustles when we had a full-time gig. We were waking up early. We were staying up late. We made sacrifices, right? This is hard work. This is not easy to do, but we developed the skills. We figured out how to make some money on our own. And then when I got laid off, for example, in 2015, I was able to ramp up some of my side hustles, figure out what I like to work on, figure out what was going to work, figure out what I wanted to do. And then I pursued that path. If I did, if I wasn't doing any kind of side hustle um, before that, then I, I would have just found another job. I would have tried to find another job and I would be stuck in the same sort of path um, where essentially I was just taking what I I could get um, the first job that I got out of college. While it was a good job, it was the only offer that I had. So I got hired um, at Accenture, which is a great company, uh, super smart people. You know, I didn't last there for too too long. Consulting's pretty tough, but um, the other option that I had was a job that I didn't get. So it's not even really an option. I haven't told this on the show. I haven't told this story on the show, but. Um, the day before I got the offer from Accenture, I was interviewing a group interview at like American Eagle Outfitters at the mall. I mean, I am uh, I am not <laughs> I'm not really cut out for um, retail these days. I, I think back then I was, I, you know, what I was interviewing, I would have taken the job if uh, if they would have offered it to me. Of course, like I said, the next day I got like a legit real offer making who knows how many more times uh, what I could have made at American Eagle, but I didn't even get an offer to American Eagle. Yeah, let that sink in for a second. So anyway, I had a, a pretty good job um, out of school, but I, I took the only offer that I that I had. And then when I got frustrated, um, you know, working at the particular project that I was on, not because of any you know, issues with a project or any of the people or anything like that. I just, I was traveling, um, you know, basically full time. I, I, uh, couldn't handle the travel and I wanted to be at home and, and just live in my house and, you know, just hang out with, with my friends in the neighborhood. Um, so I, I took the only other job offer that I had at the time as well. So I, I interviewed around and I only got one job offer and I essentially accepted, um, what I was dealt. And then it's very easy to stay in a job and be, you know, complacent and just, you know, take those, you know, one, 2% raises, take those bonuses that are kind of, kind of a joke. Um, when you compare like how much value you're potentially bringing into the company. And then, you know, the other part now, because I'm more self-aware than I used to be, I mean, I wasn't uh, a super high achiever. I, I was doing, you know, good enough. I was doing good enough. I was, uh, you know, better than half. I was probably like uh, in the 75 uh, to 80% uh, range or so, but I was never like a super high achiever to get that, you know, top 5% where you actually get like 
bigger bonuses and maybe people take you under their wing and actually like help you out. I was just, uh, you know, just average, <laughs> right, right in the middle. I wasn't the worst, but I was never the best. Overall, the point that I'm trying to make here, maybe I'm making a very uh, short story long. Basically, I highly encourage you to figure out some side hustle. If you have something, you know, rolling already, fantastic. Keep doing it. Keep stacking skills. And if you don't have a side hustle going, there's no reason not to give it a shot. There are so many different areas. I, I didn't even know about Etsy printables, yet there are people making good money on the side, relatively easy to get uh, started with it. And it's a uh, great business model, especially if you're thinking, hey, I'm not sure if affiliate marketing is for me specifically. Um, there are all sorts of side hustles. So, you know, something like Etsy printables could be your thing, right? It could be your route. And overall, like if you just start taking action and you are developing these areas where you realize, hey, I, I actually can make some money on my own and holy cow, what if I scale this up? What if I grow this a little bit bigger? All of a sudden, you're like in a different spot mentally where you think, hey, I, I can do this. I can make money on my own. And you know what? I think I could probably make more money on my own than I can in a full-time job. That's where it's like game-changing because you realize that you know, your corporate job feels like it may be a little more secure in some ways, but then you know you can get laid off, right? Most people at this point in time, you've either known someone that's laid off, you've been laid off yourself, or maybe you've been laid off multiple times. And that is just the nature of like the corporate gig right now. You can get laid off. Like there's no loyalty. There's really no loyalty. Sure, your direct manager, some of the people that you're uh, maybe you have like personal relationships with folks and, and you know them, uh, you know their family and they know you. Sure, I'm, I'm sure they like you and they care about you. But when it comes down to it, um, when layoffs come around, it is happening, you know, a few layers above you and they don't know who you are. They don't care and they have to, uh, you know, work with the share, shareholders' profits and blah, 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 right? So they don't really care about you. But once you realize, hey, you can make some good money on your, on your own and when you remove the bureaucracy, all the different layers of management, you don't need to make as much money. The, the side hustles are usually very lean. Profit margins are super high. It's very cheap to get started. It's very cheap to get started and you're able to grow a, like a real business into something much bigger um, as far as a revenue uh, generator for yourself than you potentially could be uh, earning at a corporate gig. I know for me personally, I mean, like I said, I was kind of a middle of the pack kind of dude for performance reviews. So uh, it was unlikely I was going to really jump in salary, even if I moved companies, I mean, like I just, I don't, <laughs> I really, I wasn't able to figure that part out. So I was, I figured out how to get promoted and played the political game a little bit more. But as far as like really making a lot more money, um, I, I don't think I was in an area or qualified to get it done which is totally fine with me because I figured it out on my own. So anyway, I'm going to stop rambling on here. I think I've, I've made my point. If you're not subscribed to the show yet, please consider subscribing, especially if you enjoyed this episode. 
We will catch you on the next one and have a great rest of your day.